You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Find that on page 1162 of the church Bible. Now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy, and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see also that you excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Well, I do not like teaching about money for lots of different reasons. And uh, I suspect that many of us don't like hearing about it, and yet it is very, very important. I think I have seen in uh, pastoral ministry, money cause more division almost than anything else. I've seen families that seem to be well-knit together, that when somebody dies, that siblings fall out about the inheritance. I've seen husband and wives, who that's what they fight about. I've seen churches, that's what people fight about. So I was trying to work out why I don't like teaching about this, and uh, this is what I came up with. One, it is a very sensitive subject. They say if you're an actor, you shouldn't work with children or animals. Well, if you're a preacher, you shouldn't talk about children or money, Um, maybe. Uh, Because these are, to some extent, our idols, and they are very sensitive subjects. And I will pretty well guarantee that some of you already have got your defenses, you know what I'm going to say, or you think you know what I'm going to say, and you're ready. You're going to bat back everything, and I'd ask you not to do that. Secondly, I don't actually know that much about money. I'm useless with it. Uh, The only person in the world I know that's more useless than me is my wife, but we'll not go there. Uh, So, (laughs) This is why I shouldn't teach about this. I, I, I know, well, my son as well, he's pretty useless too. 
somehow we managed to have bred a daughter who's brilliant with money, but uh, I'm not good with money at all. I I have no interest in money, really. If uh, you were to ask me, how much money does this church have? I haven't a clue. That's why we have a treasurer. I don't know. Um, And I'm not an expert. Please never come to me for financial advice at all. Thirdly, when in the church, when we teach about money, the teaching's often been misused and misunderstood. And this is not new. From the days of the New Testament, there were people who thought that godliness was a way to make money. I'm also concerned that if you're a visitor here, that this doesn't reinforce your view that the church is only after your money. You know, the kind of things uh, that happen, the begging letters that we get from charities or that person from Nigeria on the internet who just wants to tell you that their husband has died and they've got $9.6 million that they want to give to you, which is very kind of them. Um, I wish they'd just give it. Uh, but you know what I mean, that uh, that happens. Or maybe sometimes the preacher on the TV is screaming for money, it seems. Now, if you've got any sus at all, you'll work out immediately why my fears are wrong. First of all, The fact that a subject is sensitive shouldn't mean that we don't teach on it. The word of the Lord goes right into the heart, and of course, it will touch sensitive subjects. Secondly, what I know is completely irrelevant. You're not here to hear what I know. You're here to hear the word of the Lord, not my opinions. And that should be the case on any subject. And thirdly, if something is misunderstood or wrongly used, or if there is false teaching, then that means all the more we need to hear the right teaching. We need to hear the word of God. And Jesus had a great deal to say, and the Bible has a great deal to say about this subject. So I want to go and just look at some of the the, the basic principles and challenges that are here and think of it in the light of our understanding of the meaning of our lives, because it is about so much more than money. I was also thinking, just also as as a kind of introduction about what money actually is, Because when you pull out your wallet and you pull out cash, and one day, you are just as there are some of you here, and I mentioned checkbooks, you're going to go, what are those? One day, when some of you grow a bit older, you're going to have children, and you're going to tell your children about this wonderful thing called cash, and they're going to go, what was that? You handed over bits of paper, and, you know, is this like Monopoly or something? Because that'll still be around in the future, and because we're going to this cashless society. So what is money? Now, here's the most amazing thing. Money doesn't exist. It's literally worth nothing. The bits of paper says on it, I promise to pay the bearer on demand 20 pounds. I dare you to go into the Bank of England and say, I want my 20 pounds. Because it's an it's a, it's a exchange note. And the way it comes is how we govern society. It's from the idea of goods and bartering. So the way that that would work would be, I might say to you, I'm not really very good at anything, but maybe I can teach your children to play chess. And you might say, that's okay. You teach my children to play chess. I'll do your garden. I'll go, that works for me. Um, There may be other things that we exchange and barter. But in a more sophisticated society, all that money is is notes that regulate that exchange and barter. So we're transferring gifts and abilities and uh, food and other things And we're bartering, but we use money as the currency, hence the term. Now, the trouble is that as society has developed and as we've developed in the biblical times 
and in times today, money can very quickly become a thing that we believe gets us stuff, and the more we have of it, the more powerful we are. What we are looking at today is, is very, very, very countercultural, because we live in a getting culture, not a giving one. The super rich can give. We all hear about Bill Gates Foundation and all these other things, but ordinary people. People also think that their worth is expressed in how much money they get. We have to pay these bonuses if we're an employer because otherwise we won't get the best people. Because of money, people lie and cheat, people avoid taxes, people have an entitlement attitude. I have the right to have this. As the Bible, as Paul tells us in Timothy, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. People want what the church gives but don't want, doesn't want to pay for it, or churches can manipulate people to get money. It's just such a confused mess. And maybe your finances feel like that as well. Um, sometimes it's very easy for it to become a confused mess. And that's why one of the uh, projects that we have here in the church, one of the things greatly support is uh, Christians Against Poverty, CAP, and their money course, by the way, is superb, and I would highly recommend anyone uh, to, to take it, but especially if uh, you're a student and you're thinking about how to manage your money. Now, I also want to say, and I have to be quite careful here, and I'm open to correction on this, that it's not just about this particular culture here in, in Scotland, in the West. I think that there are the same issues in other cultures, in Chinese culture, Asian culture, African culture, and so on. One of the big problems for many of the Chinese churches has been that money is seen as a, a, a statement of blessing, and for a pastor to be poor is an indication that there is something wrong with the pastor. And so there, there's this whole greed culture comes into the church. I've seen African friends who told me where, that they have no problem, or in fact, some have told me the opposite, they have a big problem with uh, pastors in a country where there's a lot of poor people having big flash cars and private jets and so on. It is very disturbing, surely, that eight of the richest, inverted commas, evangelists in the world come out of Nigeria. And because it's because of a particular prosperity gospel teaching. So I think this is a problem for the church, the Western church. I think it's a problem for the African church. I think it's a problem for the Chinese church. Because the Bible challenges us. Now, as it happens, last Sunday, I was handed this. Come and see Jesus grants good success here, Winner's Chapel. Now, I don't know this particular place, and it may well teach the gospel, but the leaflet itself is, for me, very dangerous. Talks a testimony of how when I joined the church, I used my allowance to paint the church, and I know that God will paint my life. I've never submitted a CV, but now I've established a company, had graduates working with me. The turnover of that company is in billions of naira. I have charity organizations, I have houses in Lagos and London, uh, and so on. And this is a leaflet that's been given to non-Christians saying, if you become a Christian, you will prosper financially. Now, 
It's dangerous because there's an element of truth in it, as we shall see. But I do have to say right at the very beginning that you will never hear from this pulpit, and if you do, whoever's preaching will never preach here again, that the way to make money or the way to be rich is to come to Jesus. Jesus says this in John 6, very truly I tell you, you were looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Now, that's an astonishing statement because he's talking about after the feeding of the 5,000 where there was this incredible miracle and people came to him and Jesus saying, you're not coming because you saw a miracle. You think, of course I'd go because it was a miracle. You're coming because you ate and had your fill. And then he says this, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Now, if you take nothing else from this today, take this, that your greatest need in life is not to have an abundance of money or of material things or anything else. Your greatest need in life is to come to know Jesus. And if you think you can come to Jesus as a kind of investment so that you come to Jesus and then Jesus will give you lots of really good things, then you're not coming to Jesus. Because Jesus says, unless you're prepared to take up your cross and follow me. In other words, and you could lose all your money. What was it that stopped a fine young man who came to Jesus and Jesus loved him. There was something in him that was very attractive to Jesus. And he was wanted to know about eternal life and he wanted to know about God. And he wanted to follow. And Jesus challenged him on one thing, the one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor because he was a rich man and that was his idol. And the Bible records that his face fell and he went away sad. So we must never, ever teach people that if only they became Christians, then they'd be healthy and they'd be wealthy and everything would be fine. And I'll tell you, one of the reasons we have to feel so passionately about that, that is not fair on people in this congregation who have cancer. It is not fair on people in this city who are poor. It is not fair on those who are going through hard times. And above all, it's just rubbish biblically. Yes, God does everything we receive from him is a blessing. And God can and does prosper. But it's kind of an, an, an astonishing thing. I'll tell you what it's like. It's a, bit like um, it's a bit like somebody who's desperate to get married. They just don't care about who. They just want the wedding. They want the whole thing. They want the love of their life. And they are desperate to get married. Do you know what? Whilst that person is desperate to get married, it's highly unlikely they're going to get married. Or if they are, they're going to have a disaster. Because they're so desperate for the thing. They're so desperate for the prestige. They're so desperate for the status. Ironically, sometimes when they give up and say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to hunt for that anymore, they discover that they receive because the desperation doesn't shine through so much. And sometimes I think there are people who are just desperate for funding. And you can understand because if you're very poor, you need money. And actually, if you're not very poor, we still need money. All of us need money. We're lying if we say we don't want it. 
But to make that our aim in life, it's so desperately sad. And to twist Christianity so that Jesus becomes a banker for us is blasphemy. It really is. So, sorry, that was the intro. That's also half the sermon, so don't worry. Um, The situation here is the poor Jewish believers in Israel had been hit hard by outbreaks of famine during the reign of Emperor Claudius, which is around AD 41 to 54. The church in Syria, and by the way, how sad that the church in Syria today is in need of great aid. The church in Syria immediately sent aid through Barnabas and Saul. Acts 11:27. during this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This was absolutely of the essence of the Christian church. In Galatians 2, where Paul comes to Jerusalem, having persecuted the church and meets with the chief apostles, James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, it says, he says, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. In other words, that I, who have formerly had persecuted, mocked, and blasphemed the church, was now uh, following Christ. He said they recognized that. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Please don't patronize by saying we're going to give a little bit of money to the poor here and a little bit of money to the poor there and that makes us feel good. Christians are to be people who care about the poor as a fundamental of our faith and our being. Around the year AD 54, Paul asked the Corinthians to get involved with this. 1 Corinthians 16, now about the collection for God's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable to me to go also, they will accompany me. Now, when Paul writes this, he was faced with an extraordinary situation because the Macedonian churches, Philippi, Thessalonica, although Stephanie told me as I came in this morning that it was Thessaloniki, so Philippi, Thessaloniki, and Berea had contacted him to make a financial appeal. And here's the astonishing thing. They did not write Paul and say, we're struggling. Can we get some money? Can you raise money for us? They wrote him and said, can you please allow us to give money? And these churches were poor churches in comparison with the Corinthian church. So that's the context. Just some basic principles we take here. First of all, giving is a charismata. It is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul has a kind of wee competitive thing here. He says, if the poor churches of Macedonia can help so much, then why not the wealthy of Corinth? Think that sometimes you will find that very wealthy churches hold their money like this. And you'll often find that wealthy people within churches seem to think, well, we don't need to give anything more. And it's quite extraordinary that there are many churches which will testify that if they need something for their church building, 
They will get the money from people, but if it's in order to share with others, they don't. The Macedonians had an exploited colonial economy. Many of the believers were persecuted, they were fined, they were dispossessed of their property, but they showed incredible sacrificial generosity. Paul says their severe trial, their overflowing joy, and their extreme poverty led to giving. I can imagine Paul thinking, I don't want to ask the Macedonians because they're in such bad circumstances, but they write him and say, please ask us. And they were cheerful compared with the Corinthians. The Corinthians were a bunch of moaners. They really were. Oh, I suppose I'll have to give. I suppose I'll have to do this. And that's why he says, God loves a cheerful giver. The Macedonians saw giving as a grace. They did it out of joy. Calvin says by the term joy, he means that spiritual consolation by which believers are sustained under their afflictions. For the wicked either delude themselves with empty consolations by avoiding a perception of the evil and drawing off the mind to rambling thoughts, or else they wholly give way to grief to grief and allow themselves to be overwhelmed with it. See, what I think what Calvin says there is brilliant because he says we delude ourselves by turning to empty consolations. We avoid the problem, we let our minds wander, or we crash and give way to despair and grief. But here the Macedonians were saying, we're in a mess, what can we give? So grace is a giving, or a giving is a grace rather. Secondly, he says something about the method. First of all, you give to the Lord. You see what's happening here. They're not sitting down like an accountant. What can I afford to give? Here is my tithe. They were not just contributing money, but themselves. It's the giving of a lover, if you like, rather than a machine. And that's a basic principle I want to ask myself and I want to ask you. It's why, by the way, I'm a little bit reluctant to say you should tithe. Because I really want to ask, why just tithe? And why think in those terms? Because the danger is you can go, that's the 10% for God, the rest of it's mine. None of it is yours. It all belongs to God. It doesn't mean to say you don't spend anything on yourself. It doesn't mean to say you can't have that nice cappuccino or whatever. It just means that you recognize all gifts as coming from God. Christian giving is not philanthropy. It's not charity in the sense that our common understanding today accepts it. It is charity in the use of the biblical Latin term caritas for love. It is love. You give because you love. Sometimes you you may be in a situation where you have a partner, you may have a very, very good friend, uh, you may have a child and you want to give your child some money. Is it a commercial transaction? Well, maybe you want to teach them how to use money, so it might be to some degree. But not for a minute, if you love your child, do you grudge giving them. Not for a minute. And it's the same with the Lord and his people. Because you see what Paul says here is, we give to the Lord and we then give to his people. They didn't just put money in the offering plate, they put themselves in. I mentioned what I consider a particularly bad practice that sometimes occurs in Africa. I saw a wonderful practice in a uh, slum 
in Pretoria. Million people, shantytown. And there was this Dutch Reformed church that we visited. And it was strange because it was a, a well-kept building in the middle of this shantytown. And I never forget when the offering came. It wasn't like we did it. They said, first of all, I'd like the fathers in the church to come and give their money, and then the mothers, and then the brothers and sisters. And they sang and danced uh, all the way to the front, giving in money. And it was for me, it was just, it was a, it was a wonderful picture. It, it, it sounds showy. It wasn't showy at all. It was a clear part of their worship, but what struck me about it was this is in an area of extreme poverty, and these people were rejoicing at being able to give, and it made me feel very ashamed of myself and, to some extent, my own culture. The question should be, Lord, what do you want me to do with your money? Not, what am I going to do with mine? And the Lord says, I want you to love my people. What do you give? You give as much as you're able and beyond. I've told the story before of the cow and the pig debating giving. Uh, the cow says, look at all those pints of milk. The pig points to the bacon and says, your giving was a contribution. Mine was sacrifice. John Wesley could live on 28 pounds per year, and he continued to do so no matter how much money he made. He would have been a millionaire in our terms. Some Christians, says one commentator, give according to their means, some beyond their means, and some according to their meanness. These Macedonian Christians gave out, these Greek Christians gave out of their deep poverty. We are to consider giving as a privilege, not a religious duty. It is more blessed to give than to receive, says Jesus. That seems like the kind of thing that your mother said to you as a child. Eat your food. No, I don't like it. Well, they're starving children in Biafra or whatever. Well, give it to the children in Biafra. It, you know, it just sounds like a truism. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Actually, once you really grasp Christ, it actually is more blessed to give than to receive. By the way, it is blessed to receive too. Our giving then must be willing. He says, complete it, complete. Don't just have given a bit. Now you've got to complete it. We can be moved by guilt. We can be emotionally manipulated. We can be compelled from outside, but we don't do that. That is one of the reasons why in this church, uh, I actually don't know, the elders don't know, and the deacons haven't a clue what you give. The only person who's likely to know will be the treasurer if you have a deed of covenant or whatever it's called now. Why don't we know? Because it's not our business. It's between you and the Lord. And you answer to God, not to me or anyone else. And if you're lying, pretending to be a useful member of this church and taking part in things but not contributing, you're lying to God. And the only example I can see of being slain in the Spirit is when that happened in the early church with Ananias and Sapphira. So it's a very strong warning there. Don't pretend. The principle is we each decide what we've given in our heart to give because it's a matter of the heart. I imagine that somebody might go, it's a matter of the heart. Oh, that's a relief. I don't have to give. Well, it says something about you if that's what you think. James 2, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? 
Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone you will, will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you by my, my faith by what I do. Now, I think it was, it's possible to judge the state of your heart and your spirit and where you're at by the state of your bank account. And I don't mean if it's got loads in it, it shows that you're prosperous and blessed by God. It's what we do with our money. Our giving is according to what we have, not what we do not have. Some people will say we're so small, we're not like millionaires. Karl Marx in the Communist Manifesto, the most famous phrase from each according to his ability to each according to his needs, was a critique of the Gotha program in 1875. Was he quoting the Talmud or was he quoting Acts and Corinthians? I think because of his familiarity with the New Testament, it's more likely to have been Corinthians, even though he was uh, an atheistic Jew. But we give proportionately. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling the possessions and good they gave to anyone as he had need. No, we're not going to set up a commune. But it does mean this, that what we have, we share. And that none of us holds on and says, my house, my car, my money, my bank account. It's the Lord's house, the Lord's car, the Lord's money, the Lord's bank account. Doesn't mean that you automatically have to go and give it away to everyone else. It means you have to be a good steward of what you've got. I love the story Mark 41, um, in Mark rather. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts but a poor widow came and put in a very sm- two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They, gave, they all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. That's what the Bible teaches about giving. That's why it's wrong for churches to prioritize and target really wealthy people. Because it's saying to the widow who gets a pension, sorry, but your pension isn't as valuable as the millionaire's tithe. Actually, biblically, it is. And those of us who are deacons and office bearers in the church, we need to remember that. I'd be absolutely delighted if a millionaire comes and offers us a million pounds. But a test of my own understanding of the gospel would be to show just as much delight when the pensioner who's got nothing to live on but her pension, comes and puts 10 pounds or whatever into the collection plate. That's what, to me, it's so clear what the Bible teaches in that respect. Paul doesn't, he wants equality. He doesn't want the Corinthians to be made poor and the saints in Jerusalem made rich. That just reverses the situation. He quotes uh, from Exodus 16, 18, Regarding the manna, large families gathered a lot, smaller gathered less. The Greek word is the word isotis, which means equality or justice. It doesn't mean that they all have exactly the same. It means that there is a just distribution. In terms of the manna principle, when everyone got home, they found they had as much as they needed. Now, I think this is going to be, and I'd love to go into this, but I don't have the time, and I, I, but I'm, I think about it a lot. 
I think that one of the key issues in our society, in Scotland today, in the West today, is that as we move away from Christianity, rather than becoming a more equal and just society, we are going to become a more unequal and unjust society. And we in the church have to exemplify a counterculture, a different culture. Our welfare state was, people may not realize this, but after the 1940s, when uh, the beverage report was drawn up, if you actually read that report sometime, it's really interesting because it's founded entirely on Christian principles. Our welfare state was not founded on the basis of some kind of communistic, atheistic socialism. It was founded upon Christianity. 19 out of the 20 original members of the Labour Party, when asked to cite their major uh, influence in life, 19 said the Bible, only one said Karl Marx. Now, I'm not advocating a party political or even a political position here. I'm just simply saying this, that when we had a welfare state that was founded upon Christian principles, it could work. You take away the Christianity, it won't work. Same with capitalism. Adam Smith, the great Scottish inventor of capitalism, I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but of modern capitalism, but in his book, The Wealth of Nations, said that capitalism without Christianity would be hell on earth. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he taught. And that's also true. Basically, socialism without Christianity and capitalism without Christianity will just lead to injustice and inequality. Now, what does that mean in this church? It means that we will be a welfare church. It's why we have a benevolent fund. It doesn't mean we encourage a scrounge or entitlement mentality. It just means we support and help one another. When I'm doing really well financially... I should give money to help those who are not doing so well so that when I'm not doing so well, they will be able to help me. In the context of the local church as well, Paul asked the Corinthians to give to fellow believers they did not know hundreds of miles away in Jerusalem. It's why we have a missions fund. We're not just concerned about ourselves and our own environment. Sometimes there can be a temptation to say, why should we give more? Our minister is paid. We're covering our bills. There's no emergency. I'd give two answers. One, true ecumenism. There are many Christians throughout the world who do not have our resources, and we must learn to share. Personally, I have to say I struggle with the government taking taxes of me and then using it to give aid, which often will go to dictators or with strings attached seeking to enforce Western liberal social policies. I'm also extremely wary of people who use charity as a means to make money. I would never give money to any charity where the chief executive earns six-figure sums. Do you know what is one of the most effective ways of giving? Church to church. We need to be able to do that. It means we're looking out for the whole body. And then evangelism. I read this from Spurgeon. I thought this was just great. No one knows the many cares which come upon us in connection with the work of extending our churches in needy districts. Large sums could be advantageously used, but they do not come. Our own purse is not spared, but the work is great and demands large, and yet not so large but that a few wealthy persons could make it easy. We sometimes sink in spirit as we see how little the souls of men are cared for by those who call themselves the Lord's. If a growing London is not provided with the means of grace coming, uh, with the means of grace, coming generations will blame us. As the Lord enables us, our utmost shall 
be done. Here's why I think a lot of Christians don't really grasp the gospel, because if you ask them to give money for worthy programs, and they are worthy, such as helping with drug addiction and so on, it's easy to get money at a Christian trust. You ask them to give money for evangelism, it's much, much harder. Now, please explain that. I don't understand that. Because the greatest need of anyone, whether rich or poor, is to know Jesus Christ. Of course, all the mercy ministries go along with that. But I wonder if sometimes we haven't built into this, again, Western kind of superior mindset, oh, we're going to help these poor people, not recognizing that we are poor. Giving is a great investment. Proverbs nineteen seventeen: he who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward him for what he has done. He is kind, he, he who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. So imagine you give someone some money and you're thinking, I'm not sure I'm going to get that back. If your attitude is I'm giving it to the Lord, you're going to get it back in some way or others. So let me just summarize this. Maybe um, I should add one qualification. I've been talking about money, but time is money. We're not just talking about money. We're talking about our talents. We're talking about what we have. And one of the problems I think we have in the church is we're all too busy making money that even giving money doesn't really help very much. What's needed is to give ourselves. That's why I think I really shouldn't have to be standing up and saying the Aspire Project needs volunteers or whatever. And I'm not trying to guilt people. I think we should be praying, Lord, what can I do to help? And it might be a simple thing. It might just be a couple hours next Saturday to come and do some church cleaning. Well, what's your time worth? Most of you, I'm looking at you, you're worth 20 quid an hour anyway. Two hours, 40 quid. There you go. You can give 40 quid without giving a penny. That should appeal to the Scots amongst you. No, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, just think about it. One of the problems in middle-class churches in Britain and the UK is we employ people to do ministry all the time when we're supposed to do it ourselves as well. So back off a little bit from all the time stuff and think, I'm going to give a wee bit of time. Maybe I'm going to tithe my time as much as tithe my money to help the various ministries of the church. Grace leads to gratitude. Gratitude to joy. Joy to giving. When I survey the wondrous cross, what do I give? Everything. So I'm not asking how much you give. The Lord knows. I'm asking simply, have you experienced God's grace? You know that grace is just another word for generosity. Have you experienced God's generosity? Do you know the generosity of our Lord Jesus Christ? Though he was rich, he became poor. He emptied himself. He lived in poverty. He experienced loss. He was abused and mocked. He died the horrendous death on the cross that we might become rich, that we might be full, that we might gain, that we might be set free, that we might live eternally. We've got a leaflet that you should all receive. If you haven't received it, you'll receive it on the way out. And on it, there's a logo. And if you misunderstand the logo, it's blasphemous. Because the logo is the cross with money on it. And if you think the cross is the way to make you wealthy, that's a blasphemous logo. But what it's really saying is that Christ's cross gives us all that we need. All that we need. We don't need any other currency. 
Once you experience the grace of Christ, it makes you grateful. The generosity of Christ, it makes you generous. You're filled with joy and then you give. You give yourself to the Lord and you use all that you have to express that gratitude and bless his people and bless his world. You know that God is a generous God. You're not buying him off. You're not purchasing a stairway to heaven. You know that he's generous and he'll not let his people be in want. You know that he's your shepherd and you shall not want. And I would want to suggest this. If you're not giving, I don't want you to go and have a look and say, I need to give a wee bit more. I want you to go and have a look, not at your bank account, but at your heart, and say, how come my experience of grace is so shabby that I don't give? Time, money, whatever. We repent and seek the Lord first. We give ourselves to the Lord. We examine our heart. Then we examine our bank balance. Then we follow Wesley's maxim, Earn all you can, save all you can, and give all you can to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Bless it to us. We live in a society where we need money. We're thankful for it that pays for our food and our homes and our health care. We thank you that we can pay taxes to a society where we do have health care. But, oh, Lord... We need you more. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.